the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church, and good morning to those of you worshiping with us online. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking about all the things that have happened in the life of our church just in the past week. Um, Sickness, accidents, even death, and um, I was reminded of a verse of scripture 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, that says, We have this treasure in jars of clay uh, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so, uh, with that thought, uh, I'm here this morning to to, uh, pray that in my weakness, God's strength can be revealed. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. And when you speak to us, Lord, your word, your word gives us life. Your word carries life to us. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that your life And your word will speak to us, will grow us, and will help us to make us more like Jesus. In his holy name we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is part essay, part sermon, and part letter. And there's no doubt that today's portion of Hebrews from chapter 6, is in fact a letter. A letter, by the way, that carries a sting. You may recall that the writer began chapter 5 in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus as the great high priest, like Melchizedek, only better. He was writing in a very theological way, writing about doctrine, teaching about what Christians believe. But suddenly, the tone and the style of his letter takes a change. It moves from formal to personal, from lecture to letter. All of a sudden, in Hebrews 5, verse 11, which Pastor Marvin spoke on last week, 
the writer tells his readers that they probably won't understand what he's, what he's saying. It's hard to explain, he tells them, since you have become dull of hearing. Imagine that. He's telling his readers that they have become dull of hearing. I mean, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? The writer of Hebrews moves, you see, from teaching to his readers to scolding them. Now, the literal word, the literal word that's used here for dull is sluggish. Sluggish. You have become sluggish of hearing, he tells them. Sluggish of hearing. That's how he begins. And then on the backside of today's reading, that word sluggish comes up again. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to Hebrews 6, 12. And the writer says there, we desire that you may not be sluggish. It's as if the writer of Hebrew stamps that word sluggish on the front portion of this section and then stamps it again on the back portion so that his readers won't miss his point. D.A. Carson calls this particular portion of Hebrews from 5.11 to 6.12, he calls it an envelope. And so today, we are going to look at this envelope, this envelope marked sluggish, and we're going to open it, and we're going to examine the letter that's inside. But let me warn you, get ready, fasten your seatbelts, because as one commentator put it, it is short but intense, but it's perhaps the most severe warning that appears anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. You have been sluggish of hearing, he says the writer of Hebrews. First of all, we have to understand that this is a problem. Sluggish of hearing. It's a problem not of the ear. It's rather a problem of the heart. He's spoken, the, reader, the, the writer of Hebrews has already spoken about this already when he told them a little earlier not to harden their hearts as, they, as their forefathers had done when they traveled to the promised land. They complained, you may remember. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They didn't trust the Lord. They didn't believe that he was helping them out. Despite all the things that they had seen, despite all the miracles that he had done for them, their hearts were hard. Their hearts were like a stone. Now, did you ever see a stone grow? <laughs> of course not. Stones don't grow. They're not alive. Only living things grow. And that's the writer's point. Faith in Jesus Christ is a living thing. It's meant to grow. It's meant to advance. It's meant to mature. But the writer of Hebrews warns his readers that their faith is going nowhere. It's sluggish. 
It's just sitting there, doing nothing, sitting on the ground like a stone. You're sluggish, the writer of Hebrews tells his readers. You're not moving forward. You're not growing. Using another illustration, he says, you're like a baby who drinks milk when you should be eating solid food. J.I. Packer described this kind of non-growth in the same way, and let me just quote Packer. He once said, the wife of one of my colleagues recently had a baby. You know what a joy it is? A joy it is when parents, for those first few weeks, have a baby. But just imagine, says Packer, just imagine if the months and the years went by and the baby never grew. Imagine that. Imagine if the baby never grew. Imagine if, say, at the end of five or 10 years, the baby was still 18 inches long, lying helpless in a cradle. Right, it would be a nightmare. No one would have no one would be rejoicing. No one would be happy. It would be a tragedy. And says Packer, it's equally horrible when the children of God, newborn babes in Christ, fail to grow toward the stature of their Savior. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews at the beginning of chapter 6, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go and move on to maturity. It's a call for the readers of this letter to grow up, to grow up in their faith. But it's more than that. As one writer's put it, this is a warning as well as a call for all of us to make progress in our faith. If we are not more knowledgeable in the faith now than we were a year ago, if we are not growing in holiness and in our commitment, then we had better check what's going on inside of us. And so my question to you this morning is, are you growing? Are you more holy now than you were one year ago? But how do we grow? How do you become mature in your faith? Obviously, you need a foundation, a foundation of some kind in order to build something on. But the, writer, the writer's point here in, verses, in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that you have to move on beyond a foundation. You wouldn't get much of a house if all you did was dig a hole in the ground, put a foundation in, and then go and dig another hole and put another foundation in, and go dig a hole in the backyard and put another foundation in. A foundation is essential, he's saying, that's true, but you have to move beyond that. You have to start working on the rest of the house. But just so that there's no doubt about what this foundation ought to be, the writer of Hebrews then describes what he calls the elementary doctrine of Christ. He lays down three essential points which are basic 
foundational to Christian faith. Some people have called these the ABCs of Christian faith. These are the the foundation blocks on which our faith begins. And they're listed there in verses 1 and 2 from today's reading in chapter 6. The ABCs of Christian faith, the foundation blocks of our faith, are these. A, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. As Ephesians 2 2 tells us, we are dead in our sin, and all our good works don't make us right with God. It is Jesus Christ alone who makes us right with God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All the best deeds that we can do are like filthy rags compared to God, are like filthy rags to God. As Ephesians 2.8 puts it, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any person should boast. And so, we repent of the sin that's in us, we receive Christ's grace, and then to have faith toward God is to put our trust in what he has accomplished for us on the cross, on our behalf. We trust him with everything we have, with everything we are, and in that trust, a relationship of love develops with him. It starts to grow. And the young believer starts to understand, oh, now I see. God is not just a concept. God is not just an idea. God is just not an intellectual construct. God is real. God is real. And not only is he real, he loves me. He loves me. The young believer starts to understand. That's point A. Point B, instructions about washings, the laying on of hands. Scholars have many different interpretations about, in their understanding about what the writer of Hebrews was saying exactly here. But there seems to be a general consensus that it's connected with teachings about baptism. Instructions about washings. It's connected to baptism. Baptism with water is how people are initiated into the church. And the laying on of hands, well, whether it's at baptism or at ordination, symbolized the gift of the Holy Spirit being imparted to a believer or believers as the church set that person or people aside for a particular purpose. Both baptism, I want you to notice this, both baptism and the laying on of hands take place in the context of a church. Baptism, both baptism and the laying on of hands can only occur with other believers. I mean, I suppose you could, you know, 
Baptize yourself if you, if you really wanted to do that, but that wouldn't be a real baptism. It has to be done in the context of a church. Laying on of hands, you could lay your hands on yourself. I suppose you could do that, but when we talk about laying on of hands, that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about it being done in the context of the body of believers. You see, you cannot be a Christian on your own. Together, together, we make up the body of Christ. Together, we are each part of Christ's body, the church. We need one another. We need one another. As Paul told the Corinthians, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And the head can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. We need one another if we're really going to grow. If we're really going to grow, we need one another. As Ephesians 4.16 puts it, when each part is working properly, it causes the body to grow and to mature, building itself up in love. Life together in the church with other Christians is not optional. It's necessary in order to grow. That's point B. And then C, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This refers to the hope that every young believer can have in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When Jesus comes and lives in us by his Holy Spirit, we get a taste, just a taste, but a beautiful taste nonetheless of his resurrection life. And we realize that because he lives in us, we can overcome death just as he did. And knowing Jesus as we do, we long for him. We long for him to come again. We long for his second coming to judge the world because when that happens, he will put right everything that is wrong. And folks... If we've, if, if we've ever, never known before, surely we know it now. There's so much wrong with the world. So much sorrow, so much suffering, so much injustice. Look at the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's just not right. It shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. But Jesus, the righteous judge, will come again to judge the world bringing justice and setting everything right that is wrong. That's why the prayer of Christians throughout the centuries has been Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. So here are the ABCs, the foundation blocks of our faith. What the writer of Hebrew, refer, Hebrews refers to as the elementary doctrine of Christ. And you can see why he calls it that. Because everything about these ABCs of faith hinges on Jesus Christ. A, Christ brings us salvation. B, Christ puts us in his body called the church. And C, Christ gives us hope 
for the future. But this isn't the stopping place, says the writer of Hebrews. This is just getting started. This is just getting started. And with God's help, we'll move on. We'll grow. We'll grow and become the kind of mature Christians that we're called to be. Now, at this point in the letter, the writer of Hebrews takes a a sharp turn. And he describes a group of people in the church who who never will never grow because they've never even begun to grow. And the reason they haven't even begun to grow is because they don't have a living relationship with Jesus. Now, this part of his letter has been called sobering by some people. Other people have called it terrifying because it describes people who seem to be Christians, but the truth is they do not belong to Jesus. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews characterizes them. He says, they have once been enlightened. Well, enlightened seems like a good thing. And in fact, that term enlightened has often been used to describe baptism. These people have become baptized members of the church. They've taken membership courses. They've taken their baptismal vows. He goes on and says they have tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, he's talking here about Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. They've taken the Lord's Supper. He goes on and says they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, at first glance, you'd say, well, it's tempting to say, well, if they've shared in the Holy Spirit, that must mean they have, they're people of true faith. But no, you see, the Holy Spirit can convict you of sin, but that doesn't mean he has filled you with his spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. In other words, they've listened to the gospel message, perhaps, perhaps for years. Perhaps they've heard the gospel message hundreds of times. Perhaps even more than that, perhaps they've even preached the gospel message themselves. You see, there can be pastors who are in this category too. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. They've experienced signs and wonders. They've seen healings. Maybe they've even even participated in those healings. As one commentator put it, they may serve, they may preach, they may may handle the powers of the age to come, but they are not really Christ's own. They don't belong to Jesus. They look like they're Christians, but they're not, and they never have been. You've heard of fake news? Well, These are fake Christians. How do you know? How do we know? How do we know that these people are fake Christians? Well, because these are the people who have fallen away from their faith in Jesus Christ. They may have professed their faith and gone to church most of their lives, but there comes a moment when they want nothing more to do with Jesus. Are they Christians who have lost their faith? No. No. 
God's word is clear. Once you belong to Jesus, if your relationship with him is real, then you are his forever. Listen to these passages of scripture. John 10, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or John 6, 37, where Jesus states clearly, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or Romans 8, 39, that says nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Philippians 1, 6, which which promises, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. The Bible is clear, very clear. You cannot lose your faith if it is real. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to him forever. You are his. But the people who fall away from Jesus, who want nothing more to do with him, have often fooled other people. Fooled other people into thinking that their faith was real. Perhaps for a time they even fooled themselves into thinking that. And this ties into growth. Because if you're a sluggish Christian and you're not much interested in growing and you really don't care if you become more like Jesus, then the question remains, are you truly converted? A biblical example of someone with fake faith was Judas Iscariot. Just think of him. Just think of him. For years, he traveled with Jesus. How many times do you think he heard Jesus speak? How many times did he hear Jesus pray? How many times did he pray with Jesus? One commentator that I read put it this way. They said, after long years in Jesus' company, having presumably evangelized others, Judas performed, even performed miracles in his name. Judas eventually repudiated Jesus, and he did it all for 30 pieces of silver. How many people have fallen away from Jesus because they have loved money more than they have loved him? The terrible reality that the writer of Hebrews points to is that there is no second chance for these folks. They are people so bent on their own sin that God allows them to have their own way. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you want to grow to become more like him? Andrew Murray said, my assurance of salvation is found in my fellowship and love and obedience to Jesus. You see, it's it's out out of our relationship of love. The love, we love him because he first loved us. And out of that, out of that desire to love him back, out of that desire to, to to do what he wants us to do, to obey him. Out of that 
comes something very significant and which is very obvious to everyone. Out of a true relationship of love, out of a growing, maturing relationship of love with Jesus, do you know what there comes? Fruit. There is fruit. There is always fruit out of a, out of a true relationship of love that matures with the Lord. Said Jesus, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. If you are truly alive in Jesus and you are growing in him, oh, sure, you may have a long way to go. We all do. But if you are growing little by little in Jesus Christ, then there will be fruit in your life. It will come from Jesus at work in your life. The writer of Hebrews affirms those words of Jesus. He says in our closing uh, verse of today's reading, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and its end is to be burned. So let Jesus grow in you. Let Jesus grow in you. And you know what's going to happen if you do? There'll be fruit. There will be fruit. You'll see the fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. And you will know, truly know, that your life is blessed by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. And Lord, would you take the word that we've, you've shared with us today and would you help us to grow? Would you help us to grow to become more like Jesus? Lord, we, we don't want to just be baby Christians. We want to be people who look like Jesus and whose lives exhibit fruit all for his glory, all for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>